If you have your Bible uh, with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to uh, the book of Esther. That's where we are going to be picking it up here this morning. I'll give you a second to get there. Esther's in the Old Testament. It comes right after Nehemiah, right before Job. So it's on to the left of, of the Psalms. It's a unique book in the Bible for a couple of reasons. Um, the first being that it, and this one's kind of weird, it doesn't explicitly mention God. So we've got to kind of We've got to kind of deal with that at some point along the way. It's, it's also the only book with, uh, uh, with, with where, where there's none of it is set in the promised land, and there's also no reference made to the promised land. So it's a, very, it's a unique book for a bunch of reasons. And, and so here's what we need to do. I, I, we're just going to camp out in Esther for the next uh, two months. That's where we're going to be. So if you're curious as to where we're going, you can put the little bookmark in your Bible over there and, and take that step. It's okay. And we're going to be in Esther for a while now. So stand with me, if you will, as we look together to God and His Word to us today. <clears throat> this is Esther chapter 1. I'm going to start there in verse 1, and we're just going to go through the first nine verses to begin with. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Days, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. I was asked earlier if I was nervous. And and Lord, I want to confess in front of you and in front of your people, yes, I am nervous. I'm nervous about Esther. I'm nervous about this task that you've given to us to to not only to not just read your word, but to hear your word, and to, and to not just hear your word, but to receive your word. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that my weakness, that my stumbling and stammering tongue would not prevent these people, your people, from hearing your word to us this morning. Lord, we want you to speak, not me. We want you to speak that we might hear from you. And so Lord, please do that now for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
the book of Esther has what um, it has what we might call a cold open. Uh, it, it's something we see a lot in films today, where we just sort of we just sort of jump into the story as it's already unfolding. We're sort of we're sort of welcomed into the story that's already happening. And so we, we might think of something like, like you might think of something like a James Bond movie, right? Where it just kind of opens in the middle of a big chase scene and, or, or big, you know, whatever, some big fight scene. Or almost all, of, almost all of the Marvel movies now start this way. We're just sort of in the action right as it, as it goes. This one, this particular cold open of Esther 1 really reminds me of uh, Top Gun Maverick, all right? Where you, where you just sort of find yourself in the middle of it, right? Kenny Loggins is still playing his song, right? It's the highway to the danger zone. The guys are out there high-fiving on the deck of the aircraft carrier. Jets are taking off and landing. Think about that. Jets are taking off and landing on a boat. And like, we're supposed to just act like that's normal. I don't, I don't, I still haven't come to terms with that. Like, have you ever thought about, about, like, like I would have loved to have been in the room uh, where that meeting was happening, where the first person was like, hey guys, I've got an idea. And, and he pitched them the aircraft carrier. Like, that's just, I would, I would love to have just, a, just an ounce of the boldness of whoever that guy was. Um, but just like in that movie, this book sort of opens immediately in the action. And the title character, here's the thing that makes it really similar. The title character, uh, she's not even there. In fact, Esther won't even make an appearance in chapter 1 at all, but, but it launches into the narrative there in verse 1. Look at that with me. I want to read this again in verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus has sat, I say an extra S on that almost every time. This guy's killing me with his name. And in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast or a banquet for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. You see, it just jumps right in. It just steps right into this story that's playing out. But we need to understand some of this setting. You have some idea of this setting in order to, to kind of make sense of what's coming. Ahasuerus is, is better known to most of us as, as Xerxes I. He's the king who ruled from 486 to 465 BC. The Persian Empire, if you can imagine this, we don't really have this today. They are the world empire, the world power at the time with a territory that stretched across what is effectively the known world. Uh, Ahasuerus had dealt with, Xerxes had dealt with some rebellion early in. There was a revolt in Asia. There had been some, in Egypt, there had been a, a revolt uh, amongst some of the remaining, like the remnant of the Assyrian Empire over in Babylon. And so, and so he didn't really get to have a honeymoon. He, as, as a new king, he didn't get much of a honeymoon, uh, um, much of a honeymoon period. And so he was immediately in the fray with more to come. If you know anything about this, this emperor, this king, you, you know that we're a few years away from, from Persia's invasion of Greece, an invasion that will see some, some great resistance, particularly and famously in the form of, of the Spartan army at Thermopylae. And so at this point, what we should notice is, is that things, things are pretty good for the king. All right, in verse 4, 
It tells us that he has all these people around him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Okay, so in celebration, now think about this, in celebration of himself, of his royal glory, our boy is essentially throwing a six-month frat party with all his friends. That's what he's doing. But make no mistake about it, the word for feast there in verse 3 can also be translated as banquet, but the word in Hebrew is specifically related to the word for drinking. And so he's just throwing a big old keg party for himself. These are, right here, these are the king's banquets. And the party's happening in Susa. That's one of four capitals. When your empire is that big, you need four capitals sitting in what would be, uh, Susa sits in somewhere around where we would call like southwest Iran in our day, and it was a monumental achievement in, er, in like early uh, urban settlement. And we get a pretty vivid description of the palace and gardens. Do you notice that? We talk about what the floor is made of, what the curtains look like. They've got, they've got golden vessels and they've got the royal wine. And they are going in on this party. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is fascinating, but it's easy to overlook. It says, the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. That's a weird verse, isn't it? That the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. And so apparently in Persian party culture, you needed a rule to say that there is no rule. It's literally a rule that says you must drink as much as you want. And so that tells us something, not just about this king specifically, though it does that, but it also tells us something about all earthly kingdoms. And the original audience for this book would have picked up on this. You see, the whole scene, this whole scene is meant to be, this whole 180-day feast followed up by a seven-day feast is meant to be a demonstration. That's all it is. It's a demonstration of the king's power and therefore Persia's power. It's a demonstration of the king's authority and therefore Persia's authority in the world. That's the whole point of these feasts. That's the point of these banquets. It's a demonstration. It's to demonstrate this great power and authority. And for a Hebrew, for a Jew reading this or hearing this read, they would have come face to face with with this very grim realization and a very powerful Contrast. One commentator said it this way. He said, The contrast with the plight of the Jews could not have been sharper. The Persians were strong. The Jews were weak. The Persians were wealthy. The Jews were poor. The Persians seemed to own the world. The Jews seemed to have been passed around from empire to empire. Ahasuerus could do whatever he wished. The Jews could not. And so we might begin to wonder... Like this question might actually arise in our hearts. In fact, I would hope it would. It's clear that uh, it's clear that 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 Xerxes, it's clear that Ahasuerus is on his throne. But is God on his? And we want to recognize, like I, I want to, I, I do, I want to recognize that many of us have asked a question like that in our lives. Why is it that God often seems so absent? from the realities of the present world? Why is it that he seems so distant? Why is it that he seems so uninterested? Why is it that he doesn't seem to be there? 
And listen, the Jews in Persia, they knew the stories. Let's not, let's not forget that. They've been raised in the traditions. They've been taught the stories. Those weren't lost. They knew of a God who, like, they knew of a God who parted seas, right? Now, they knew that story. They knew of a God who stopped rivers so that people could walk across it. They knew of a God who literally rained down fire on the wicked, destroying, destroying the city of Sodom. And so they have to be wondering, if they know all that, where is that God right now? Like, where is that God today? Where is that God in our lives today? Everything they were experiencing was that the wicked, right, the lavish, that the, the rich and the powerful, they were in control. That's all they were experiencing, but that's not necessarily all they knew. Look at verse 10. We've seen the king's banquets. Now we see the queen's standard. Here's verse 10. It says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven units who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. For a man obsessed with power, for a man obsessed with authority, the other people around him, this is not just true of this king, it's true of all of us. If you're obsessed with power and obsessed with authority, the other people around him, they're just assets. That's all they are. They are just, they're little more than things to be owned, little more than things to be used, tools to enhance his own comfort. One of the things I've seen in my own life is that so many of us aren't really interested in, in the two-way street of genuine friendship. Now, I hesitated to say this, but I think it, I really believe this. I've seen it. We're, we're scared of friendship. We're scared of real relationships. We're scared of that vulnerability and we resist it. We're more interested in what we might call gas pedal relationships. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Good, because I think I made it up. Gas pedal, gas pedal relationships. By the way, this is what you learn on a wet day as you're pulling out of our parking lot trying to go up that hill. Gas pedal relationships. That's what the king wants. He sees his wife like we see the gas pedal. He just wants to push it and get what he wants. Right? I just want to mash the pedal and the car Go. I don't want its thoughts. I don't want its opinions. I don't want its traction control blinking at me as if I've done something wrong. I just want you to move. So much of what we see in the world and the relationships of the world looks like that. He just wants to push and get what he wants. His desire, his desire at his time. Because, because everyone is just a vehicle. We treat so many people like this. They're just a vehicle to carry us through life in comfort. Like, is that how we are treating those around us? And so here, here's what it is. Vashti to him, she's just a trophy in his eyes. She's just a prize, something to be displayed as a demonstration, as a further demonstration of his greatness. Because she's beautiful. That's what he sees, but that's not how she sees herself. Remember, she was giving her own feast. Did you catch that? That's what we saw in verse 9. She's in his palace, but she's throwing her own party. And now her drunk husband, he's merry with wine, 
is beckoning her. And this needs to be said. I know we live in a day of, of great liberty when it comes to, to alcohol. And I would say that even specifically in the church. And Christians have taken wildly different positions on the appropriateness of drinking. And so I'm not going to try to bind your conscious, conscience in that. Like we might, like Jesus, we have to deal with the fact Jesus made water into wine. Like he did that. That's literally his first sign in, in John 2. Uh, Paul told Timothy, no longer drink only water. So Timothy's trying to stay hydrated, and Paul's like, don't just do that. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so the Bible doesn't condemn wine or alcohol, but it absolutely, unapologetically condemns drunkenness. Throwing it in there as a sin in the likes of sexual immorality. And so the Bible takes it seriously. God takes this issue seriously. And what we see over and over again, both in Scripture, both the witness of Scripture and the witness of our life, is just how quickly things can go badly when people abuse it. Right? I mean, it's just that simple. If you need proof of that, just, just if you need proof of what I just said, just walk through a tailgate on a Saturday afternoon in the fall. Or talk to Connor and let him tell you how much they spend on beer at an average Carolina game these days. It's unbelievable amount of money. Anyway, for us, if you want to begin to live somewhat counter to the culture, this is a great place for us to start. It's a great place for us to start. And, and we see just how quickly things go bad here in Esther 1. I like the way David first says it. He says, instead of being joined to her as a committed covenant partner, Ahasuerus treats his wife as one more object that will bring him prestige because he is married to this great beauty. But for all his preening, Ahasuerus is one more drunk to fall. You see, even though we don't, we don't get to know Vashti in great detail, what we do know is that she had standards. We know this woman had standards. She's more than an object. She's more than a pretty face. And we need to hear this. We all do. As a husband of one wife, as a father of two daughters and two sons and a son-in-law, I, I want to press in on this just a little bit too. So, so here it is. Vashti has a soul. She's an image bearer of God. And for someone who only appears on one page of the Bible, see, she only appears on one page of the Bible, she has left a legacy of human God-appointed dignity. And for that, we can be grateful. Now look at verse 13. In verse 13, she's refused to come at the king's command. He gets upset. It says the king became enraged. And look at what he does. This is a long section, so stick with me here. It says, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, 
Let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. By the way, I don't know if any of those names were pronounced right. You just need to know that. All right? I'm not proud of that, but you just need to know that. We're going with the say it with confidence and hope people don't notice. Okay? So if you come up to me, you're like, I'm pretty sure that's pronounced. I'm going to just agree with you. I don't want to fight at the door. Just It's at this point, all right? I know, it's, it, preaching narratives is different, right? It's at this point that the irony is almost laughable. This is the cultural consequence. We've seen the king's banquets, we've seen the queen's standard, and now we see the cultural consequence of it all. Because what should have been, what should have been, no more than a minor domestic issue, nothing but a private family matter, something that could have been discussed over coffee the next day with a big old apology. Now it's a state crisis. His pride, this guy's pride has been so wounded, this mere woman has stood up and refused him. One of the things that we'll notice as we go through this book is that this king never does anything without someone's advice. He never does anything without someone else's opinion. And so for all his posturing, he's, he's really pathetic. For all his showing off, he's actually pretty shallow. And for all his position and prestige, he really has no sense of proportion. But this seems so, so familiar if you read through the lines. We see it in the news all the time. We see this type of life on social media nearly every day where something that should have been a relatively trivial matter within a very small circle becomes a topic of debate for the entire world to chime in on. We've largely adopted an Ahasuerus outlook or worldview where people where people are sort of reduced down to the lowest level and they end up being seen more as problems than as persons. I'd love to blame reality TV. I really would. But Esther 1 came out way before The Bachelor. You see, the real issue is this simple. His ego is wounded. And he's embarrassed because he's exposed. And then it reads almost like satire. The irony in there is really, it's really pretty thick. Think about this. When he called for his wife to come and perform, imagine this. He calls for her to come and perform, and she refused. He was furious. But when he calls his advisors to come and give him legal precedent, and all they do is offer some sort of new solution, he seems fine. And so he's remarkably inconsistent. They didn't do what he asked for. There was no law. How about the fact that she recommended... How about this? Think about this. The recommended punishment for the queen, is exactly what she wanted in the first place. That's worth noticing. She didn't want to be around him, and her punishment is that she cannot be around him. This guy seems well-balanced, right? 
I love that one. Someone pointed out that the counselors have been summoned because the king cannot control his wife with a decree and their advice. He can't get his wife to do what he wants her to do with his decree. And so their advice to him is to what? Let's send out a decree to all the women of all the empire. Do you see the irony in that? Like, here's one more. The counselors are absolutely terrified by the prospect that word of Vashti's refusal of the king is going to get out. They are terrified of that. That the people are going to hear that this woman has rebelled, and now they might do the same thing. That's Mamukin's biggest fear. That word of this is going to spread. That's verse 17. That the queen's behavior will be, be made known to all women. And so what's their proposed solution? They send a decree, a royal order, across the whole empire, telling them what Vashti's done. You see, when fear, here's what happens. When fear becomes our primary motivator, when we operate, when we operate and make decisions out of fear, fear of losing power, fear of being seen as imperfect, fear of failure, fear of what others will think, it leads us into a deeper pathway of fear and doubt. That's all it does. And this is familiar territory. We're used to a world where, where those with power, even if they are ridiculous, right? even if they are unstable, seem to shape the world around us. You see, the greatest irony in all of this is that the all-powerful king, with all his strength, with all his influence, with all his stature, with all his stuff, is really just showing how powerless he truly is. And all this leaves us wondering, as we see it unfold, is there... It leaves us wondering if there is something better. This opening chapter is demonstrating the foolishness of the world. Things that we see with our own eyes, and it's beckoning us, it's pleading with us to long for something better. It's, the, the author wants us to have a desire for something greater than, than keg party kings and their hollow dreams. That's where we begin to see the hand of God at work in Esther. That's where we see what one author has called the inconspicuous providence of God. It's, it's there in the wreckage, right? Like it's there when, when we're brought low. It's there beneath the facade. That's where God comes and finds us. Beneath all the posturing, beneath all the pretending, beneath all the stuff that we try to present to the world. It's there in the vulnerability. It's there in the inadequacy. It's there in the frailty. That's where love comes to us. That's where Jesus comes and finds us. He comes not with a parade. He doesn't come with a 180-day feast. He doesn't come with pride and posturing and positioning and prestige. But he, what he comes with what? He comes in humility. He comes in meekness. The picture that we're given of our true and better king is far from the image that the world wants. I want you to hear this. Ahasuerus is the blueprint for all the earth's kings. He, he, he's practically the world's mascot. He's got everything that the world wants. Man, he's got the money. He's got, like, he's got women. He's got, he's, got, he's got wine flowing freely. He's got, he's got time. Think about that. He has time to throw a 180-day party. Most of us can't find three hours a week to just to be still. This guy's throwing a 180-day party. He's got everything that the world tells us that we should want. And yet, and I would say this, if he doesn't seem familiar, it's only because we aren't paying attention. In contrast to that, our king comes and what? He comes and empties himself. 
like against the advice of his disciples. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're like, you don't want to do that. And he's like, well, I'm going. And you remember Peter? He's like, well, let's go die with him. Against the advice of his disciples, he actually moves towards us in self-sacrifice. He moves towards us emptying himself, not pouring out wine for himself, but emptying himself. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And it's in that humility, right? It's, if we can just not try to overstate this, but just make it very clear, it's in that humility that Christ gave his life for you. And not the shiny version of you. Not you with the golden goblet drinking the king's wine. No, he, not the airbrushed version, okay? Not the Instagram filtered version of you. He gave himself for the wreckage. And, and I love what Paul says in Philippians 1. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So like, maybe you feel a little stuck today. Or maybe you feel warm out, worn out. You're, you're like, it's a week into this new year and I'm already done. I've, actually, I mean, I've heard that this week. That's okay. Can you hear me say that? That's okay. Because Jesus isn't done with you. You see, he finds us in the wreckage, but, but by grace, he never leaves us there. He gave up his strength that the weak might be made strong. He gave up his riches that the poor might be made rich. He gave up his throne that we might have a place with God. And that's, here it is, that's the edict that Christ, <laughs> that Christ has sent out over all the world. That's the king's edict. That's his declaration of God over creation and over you. It's that he will bring that good work that he began to completion in you. That's his promise. That's our hope. Laurie came into the room, I think it was Friday morning. She had done her quiet time and I was, I was doing mine and she says, I've got our verse of the year memorized. And I was like, that's amazing. Uh, what was last year's? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. We said it last week. Apart from Christ, that's nothing more than an impossible sentiment to try and carry. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Why? Because He's our hope. Because He's our hope. He will bring that good work that He began in you to completion. That's what we can hang on to. That's what we can hold on to today. That's His promise. He's our hope. Esther 1 reminds us that there is something greater. That there is something better than the mess of the world. For some of you, if you're tired of chasing after that thing, Jesus says, come on home. Come and be with me come in faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you speak to us even through even through a pretty weird opening chapter here. Thank you that the parties of the earth do not compare to the banqueting table of the Lamb and the King in heaven. That what we look forward to and hope isn't built on the empty promises of a would-be deity, but it's built on a risen ruling and reigning king today. Help our confidence to be in you. Help our hope to be found in you. May we rejoice in that hope.
May we be patient in tribulation. Lord, may we be a people who are constant, constant in prayer. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.